As you're being seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word, whatever format you have it, and turn to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 30. So we're continuing our series kind of for this summer on a tour of the tabernacle. And so we're looking at this architectural thing that God has designed very uh, specifically and uniquely to see why he designed the furnishings and functions of the tabernacle the way he did and how they point out something about his character, something about our need in our sinfulness, something about the work of Christ, and then what it means to live in fellowship with the holy God who made this place. And so last week we looked at the altar of sacrifice, the first kind of furnishing you would see as you walked into the tabernacle. And this week we're going to look at the basin for washing. And so I'm going to read uh, Exodus 30, verse 17 to 21, and then there's two other texts I'm going to read, but I should say just stick in Exodus 30 and you'll be able to follow along with me. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. I'm gonna read from Exodus 38, verse eight. So this, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And I'm gonna read from Exodus 40, verse 30 to 32. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you that you have not left us in the darkness of our own devices and thinking, and yet you have given us the light of your glory shining through your word. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, you might open our eyes that we could behold wondrous things, that we would submit to its authority, that we would cling to its inerrancy, and Lord, that we would be transformed by its power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about a basin for washing. So I wonder how much thought and care do you put into your own personal hygiene program every day? Are you one of those people who obsess over it? You shower morning, noon, and night. You never leave home without your hand sanitizer. Or are you one of those people who likes to live dangerously? You think jumping in a chlorine pool is equal to a month's worth of showers. Well, no matter how little thought you put into your personal hygiene, you are no match for 83-year-old Amu Haji. So I looked up, I I found this on the internet, so it's true. He's an Iranian man who claims to have the world record for going the longest without bathing. 65 years without taking a bath. Now, if you're wondering, how can someone possibly go 65 years without doing that? Here's the answer in his case. He has a terrified fear of water and believes that he'll get sick if he bathes. And so, no matter what level of care you do or do not put into your personal hygiene, I think we all inherently know, when we hear of someone who has not bathed for 65 years, 
that's probably a little too long to go between baths or showers. Now, we know we probably shouldn't compulsively obsess over hygiene, nor should we completely ignore it. I think love of our neighbor's noses dictates that we at least put some thought, some attention into this matter. Well, for us, the matter of hygiene is one of thinking of you know, personal cleanliness. But for the priests who serve in the tabernacle, hygiene was not a matter of personal bodily hygiene. It was a matter of ceremonial ritual cleanliness. For them, they had to obsess over it. There was no choice for them. They had to wash, and they had to wash constantly. Because for them, it was a matter of life and death. To not wash was a capital offense under the Old Testament ceremonial system for a priest. They had no choice when it came to their ceremonial hygiene. They had to completely obsess over it. Well, this this outward focus on being ceremonially clean eventually throughout the Bible gave rise to this internal desire to actually really truly be spiritually clean before the Lord. To not just have clean hands ceremonially, but for the Lord to give them a pure heart spiritually. And you can hear it in David's prayer in Psalm 51, that quintessential prayer of confession where David knows his sin and he knows that there is no ceremonial cleanse for his sin. So what does he pray in Psalm 51? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Probably the most famous verse we know from this, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. David looks at the ceremonial system that he's under and he knows that it is only a type and shadow and it cannot produce the internal change that he needs and yet he knows he needs it. Well, both the ceremonial and the spiritual imagery of cleansing and hygiene is connected to the next piece of furniture that we're going to look at in the tabernacle, namely the basin for washing. So what is this furniture piece all about? Well, God designed this basin to be a visual symbol of one of the question and answers we get in Psalm 24. Psalmist in Psalm 24 asked this question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in God's holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's what the basin for washing is all about. So in other words, what the basin was communicating is that without the washing of water, there is no cleansing from sin. And without cleansing from sin, there is no fellowship with a holy, spotless, pure God. And so let's start by considering the ceremonial significance of the basin for washing, as it would have originally functioned in the tabernacle. Let's start by looking at where was it placed. If you look at Exodus uh, chapter 30, verse 18, we're told exactly where this particular item was set in the tabernacle. It says, you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. So if you see that chart in your bulletin there that I've laid out for you, you can see that the basin was both the second item you would have encountered when you walked into the outer courts of the tabernacle, but it was also the last item you'd have interacted with before you entered into the tabernacle proper. So if you've been in most stores, restaurants or or whatnot, you'll see as you leave the bathroom, there's a sign that says, all employees must wash their hands before returning to work. I don't know why they need that there. There's probably something that came up, but they're there. Well, Think of the location of this piece of furniture, what's in it. It's communicating to all the priests. All employees of the Lord in the tabernacle must wash before entering God's holy presence, before participating in his holy services. 
Well, in terms of the design and look of the basin, we're told relatively little about this. In fact, we're told the least about it from all the other pieces of furniture. So the altar, which we looked at last week, was given very specific instructions and very detailed descriptions of what it was to look like. With this, we're told this in Exodus 30, verse 18. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. So you want to know what it looks like? That's, that's as detailed as it gets. Even Ikea furniture comes with better descriptions than that for how you're to put it together. Well, what does this lack of detail mean? It means a couple of things. We don't know exactly what it looked like. So I, I put a little image in your uh, bulletin there for you to give you an idea of what it may have looked like. It's a resemblance, not a direct replica. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But also another uh, reason for the lack of detail is because this piece of furniture was probably the simplest article and the plainest article in the whole tabernacle. I mean, you make a basin that holds water, you make a stand that holds the basin that holds water, and voila, you have a basin for washing. It, it, even I could probably uh, construct this. And so it's very simple, it's very plain. And yet also the lack of detail should serve as a caution against fanciful speculation. And this is kind of like a subpoint of the study of the tabernacle series. Because when it comes to the tabernacle, fanciful speculation abounds. There is no lack of fanciful interpretive ideas regarding some of the parts and components of the tabernacle. And so uh, when you look at like a book like Revelation, for example, I think Revelation is probably number one in terms of fanciful speculation. Tabernacle is number two. So I'm preaching on the tabernacle. I'm going to preach on Revelation next. So I'm boldly going where no man uh, would dare go. But here's the importance of understanding this. As Christians, our calling is to be faithful handlers of the Bible, faithful interpreters of the Bible, not fanciful speculators. And the difference between the two is when you fancifully speculate, it's when you make claims and statements about the Bible with zero to very little evidence to back up that claim. So let me give an example of this. I'm going to pick on an author that I generally enjoy. His name's A.W. Pink, solid author, smarter than I, but he's wrong here. Let me just, all right. So he's writing this in his commentary in Exodus 30. He says this. He says, the measurements of all the other furniture of the tabernacle are given to us. It's true. The absence of any here in connection with the basin and its water plainly communicates to us that God intended us to understand that there was an unlimited provision for our cleansing in the basin. So what he did there is he said, no measurements are given for the basin. It's given for everything else, which means that God intended us to understand that there is no measurements because the basin provides unlimited washing for us. He provides zero evidence for that claim. He doesn't back it up. The absence of measurements for the basin of washing means that there's an absence of measurements for the basin for washing. That's what it means. So to speak where the Bible is silent is to engage in speculation. It's very dangerous. And there's other examples. So there's, there's one author I was reading who has a list of all the materials that are used in the tabernacle. He says the gold stands for the deity of Christ. The silver stands for the redemption of Christ. The, the bronze stands for the atonement. And he gives all these lists and not a single piece of evidence to back it up. So in, in one sense, it's like almost like you're a lawyer on, on trial and you're presenting your case. You need evidence. Where's the evidence? That's how we should handle the scriptures. And yet definitive statements and, and these inside uh, trade secrets sound cool. They make it seem like you've unlocked the secret code in the Bible. 
and yet it amounts to fanciful speculation. This is the word of God. We want to handle it with the utmost care. We want to honor the Lord who revealed himself to us by approaching his word with reverence, with carefulness. And so we want to be interpreters of the Bible who back their interpretations up with solid evidence. To use a famous line from my favorite fictional detective of all time, Sherlock Holmes, he said this, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. That's how we should think about even approaching the Bible. Well, speaking of facts, Exodus 38, verse 8, tells us exactly what type of material this basin was made out of. It says in verse 38, or chapter 38, verse 8, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the altar, as we looked at last week, and this vessel are made out of bronze, but there's something unique here. This basin is specifically made out of bronze that had been used as mirrors by some of the women in Israel. And I actually tried to use this with my wife to say, this is why we shouldn't have mirrors and do makeup because they, the Israelites took them away, but she didn't buy it. There's no evidence to back it up. But when you think of bronze, when this is before the age of glass, when you thoroughly polish bronze and smooth it out, it's not only kind of luminous, but it's reflective. You can see your reflection in the mirror. So th- these were kind of the mirrors of their day. So you take this polished bronze, you make a bowl. So whenever the priest comes up to this basin for washing, what do they see? They see their own reflection in this basin. So it's a place to wash where you can see what you need to wash in this basin. Well, the basin was also filled with one of the Bible's richest and most multifaceted images, namely water. Water shows up all throughout scripture, not just you know, in literal form, but it's used in metaphoric and imagery forms. So in some places in scripture, water is an instrument of judgment. Think of the flood, that the water poured out and God judged the earth. In other places, water is an image of spiritual thirst and longing for satisfaction. As a deer pants for flowing streams, oh Lord, so my soul pants, for you. Water is this longing for satisfaction. And also water is an image or sign of a blessing by its presence or cursing by its absence. Think of uh, famine. There's no rain. You know, During Prophet Elijah's day, there was no rain. It was a sign of curse on the people who had turned away from the Lord. But Hosea prophesies a day when the Lord shall come to us like the spring rains that water the earth, a sign of the blessing of the Lord's presence. But in this case, The water that fills this basin is an image of cleansing and washing. So it's kind of the the laundry term, as it were. So in the Old Testament ceremonial system, if you were under that system as an Israelite, there was two statuses that you could have. You were either clean or you were unclean. So for most Israelites, you were constantly in flux between these two statuses, clean or unclean, unclean, clean, clean, unclean. You were going back and forth. And you became unclean Anytime you came in contact with anything that related to death, disease, defects, disallowed food, or discharge. These are the five Ds of that. I had to memorize this for my ordination trial. So all of those, you look at the book of Leviticus, book of Exodus, Numbers, you see these unclean things. It falls under one of those five categories. So if someone touched you who had a skin disease, you would have contracted uncleanness. If you handle blood of, in any form, you had a you know, cut on your kid's leg and you touch blood, you'd become unclean. Now, in order to reverse that, 
to be restored to a status of clean, you had to go through a ceremonial washing ritual so that you could be cleansed and that you could once again enter into the outer courts of the tabernacle. Well, think of the priests who are working day in, day out in the tabernacle system. What are they interacting with? They're interacting with blood all the time, constantly, and then dead animals. So for the priests, what they had to do was go to the basin over and over and over again. So the basin is placed here next to the altar to provide a quick, convenient access to a place that they can cleanse themselves to be restored to a status of clean so they can continue to minister in the tabernacle. And that's exactly what it it gets used for. So look at Exodus 30, verse 19 to 21. Three different times the Lord reminds them this is what this is for. So starting at the end of verse 18, you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. So to get the blood off their hands and the dust off their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. So the Lord repeats it to the third degree. You shall wash, you shall wash, you shall wash. When the Lord repeats something to the third degree, it's not just important. It is vitally important for you to know. So before and after handling a sacrifice at the altar, they had to wash. Before ever entering the tent of meeting where they're going to deal with the table of showbread and the candlestick, they had to wash. What that means for this basin is it it was a very busy place. It was a very busy, well-used basin. And if you were there to witness it, it would have looked like, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if you watch hockey in Florida, if that's a thing here. I'm from Minnesota, so it was a religion up there. But in a hockey game, you constantly have shift changes going on over and over again. Players going off, players coming on. That's what the wash basin looked like in the tabernacle. Priests going to wash, priests who had just washed coming to replace them to do the sacrifices over and over again, taking different shifts in and out, in and out. And then the water, think about you're washing blood in this basin. It quickly becomes tainted with blood. It quickly becomes murky, dirty water. And so it was likely replaced on a regular basis. So you would have this cycle a priest coming to wash, blood getting in the water, and then a priest emptying it, refilling it, priest coming back to wash, emptying it, refilling it, and it's over and over this repetitive cycle. And in case the priests got tired of this process and thought, you know, we got to short circuit this. We got to be more efficient. We need to cut corners around here. They had this occupational hazard hanging over them. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. So the sign on their returning to work was all priests must wash their hands lest they die. Okay, you don't, you don't usually see that at restaurants. So washing for them was not just a matter of hygiene. It was a matter of life and death. So thus, the basin symbolized, by God's design, the question and answer of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy presence? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So now let's consider the theological significance of this basin. God has designed the tabernacle as a visual symbol of vital spiritual truths. So what are some of those vital spiritual truths communicated through this particular piece of furniture? Well, as it relates to God's character, the basin demanded that the priests wash, wash, wash. 
because God is holy, holy, holy. The way that they were to use it was in essence a communication of what God is like. God does not leave it to guesswork as to why he demands purity, why he demands cleanliness, why he demands holiness. In Leviticus 10.3, Nadab and Abihu have tried to enter into God's holy presence in a way that God had not commanded or prescribed. They're consumed with fire, and this is what the Lord says to their father, Aaron. Among those who draw near me, I will be regarded as holy. I will be held in honor among all the people. And then Leviticus 11.44, after a long section of cleanliness code, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. And then Leviticus 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation, Moses, and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And unless you think this is an Old Testament relic, God got anger management training between the Old and New Testament. He's a little nicer now. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. Holiness is just as important for us as it was for them. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Isaiah, prophet one time, walks into the tabernacle the temple, I mean, the, the earthly dwelling place of God. And yet when he walks in there, he's actually transported into the heavenly throne room of God, of which the earthly one is just a replica. And when he's there, he sees an angelic choir that would scare us to death. We would we'd all be fleeing this building if we saw this angelic choir. But he hears them singing one song with one particular attribute of God's on their lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And you know what Isaiah's response was when he heard that song, when he got a glimpse of the holiness of God? Well, I'll tell you what it wasn't. His response wasn't, hey guys, if we just added a band, some lights, maybe some some smoke, we could really market this to a broad Gentile audience. Nor was his response, hey guys, if you really wanna, want people to feel welcome here, if, if you might consider using a different, more, more safe word that would make others from diverse viewpoints feel welcome, like maybe casual, casual, casual. <laughs> and yet in many ways, that's what people have done with the holiness of God. They've tried to tame the untamable God. That's why, why Lewis in, in the Narnia series, when they ask, you know, is he safe? Well, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. You cannot tame him. And so Isaiah's response when he got a glimpse of the holiness of God, he was not just getting a glimpse of the holiness of God, but he was in one sense seeing a reflection of himself in that. And it threw him to the ground. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Literally, I am a dead man because I am unclean and I'm in the presence of absolute moral purity. When God says that all who approach him must be pure. He's not being harsh. He's not being tyrannical. He's not being unwelcoming. In a way, it's a severe act of kindness to you. When I sternly warn my daughter, my little daughter, do not put your hands in an open fire for roasting marshmallows, 
and she doesn't listen to me and I forcibly pull her away, it is not unloving of me. It is a stern act of kindness toward her. Or when a law enforcement agent comes to your house and forces you to evacuate, even makes you leave behind some of your stuff because you're ignoring the Category 5 hurricane that's actually coming this year despite all the news reports of the years past, that is a severe act of kindness towards you. God in his holiness is absolutely morally pure. There's not a single spot in his character. There's not a single blemish in any of his actions. In his absolute moral purity, he is opposed and hostile to all that is impure, all that is unjust, all that is unrighteous. So think about it like this. As as fire cannot tolerate paper, but consumes it, so God cannot cannot tolerate impurity, but consumes it. So thus, in his severe kindness, God demands purity, 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 because he is holy, holy, holy. And yet in his holiness, and someone said holiness is like the light that shines through every single one of God's attributes. It's, it's kind of the adjective that, that flows through every adjective. He has a holy justice, a holy righteousness, a holy wrath. He has a holy love and grace as well. God is incomparably gracious because what he demands of us, he provides for us. Let's not forget that he who said, be clean, priests, also provided the basin for washing so they could be clean. Well, as it relates to our sinfulness, how has sin affected our relationship with God? The basin is like a mirror reflecting back to us the stain of sin that we are utterly powerless to remove in and of ourselves. As a priest would go and see in that basin the blood on their hands from the sacrifices, we go to the word first, before we come to Christ, we see a reflection in the mirror of the word, our sinfulness that we are powerless to remove in and of ourselves. The Bible offers a number of different metaphors for sin from different angles. There's a legal metaphor for sin. It teaches us that sin is the breaking of God's law, the incurring of a criminal record. There are financial metaphors for sin. Sin is the incurring of a debt that we will not be able to pay off no matter how we try. And there are political metaphors for sin. Sin is a form of spiritual treason and rebellion against the highest authority in the land. And we're the rebels and the treason, the treasonous. But the biblical metaphor for sin that is associated most closely with this item in the tabernacle is that of hygiene and cleanliness. Sin has left a crimson stain and made us morally unclean before a holy, spotless, and pure God. Recently, a single undiscovered crayon made it through a whole laundry cycle at the Jacobson house. It was a sad day. It stained every piece of clothing. I don't know if you've had crayons go in the wash. It's one thing, but once it goes through the dryer and it heats up and melts, it gets everywhere. And then once the dryer stops, it hardens on everything. Ashley has fought some tough stains in her career, but her chemical concoctions, her her mom blog searching her patients was no match for the stain. So May that laundry rest in peace. (laughs) Like melted crayons to close, so is the crimson stain of sin in our souls. It has marred our innocence, it has ruined our righteousness, and it has contaminated and defiled our hearts before God. Uh, Think of that Shakespeare play, Macbeth. Lady Macbeth, who's trying to help her husband get to the throne of power, commits awful acts of murder, And she's out sleepwalking one day, and sin has left this obvious stain, but it's invisible as well. So she's sleepwalking, and she cries, Out, cursed spot, out, I say. 
Will these hands never be clean? All the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten this one little hand. What's she doing there? She sees the stain of sin, the guilt on her conscience. She knows that even though no one can see it, she does. And she knows that she can do nothing to get that cursed spot out of her hands. All the washing that the priest did at this basin amounted to nothing more than an external ritual that pointed to an internal need. But the physical ceremony was powerless to affect any real spiritual change. And the Bible is abundantly clear that external behavior modification does not lead to internal spiritual transformation. You can do all the external change you want, but it does not affect internal spiritual transformation. This was the stinking thinking of the Pharisees. They thought that if they maintained a pristine external purity, if they avoided contact with sin in any form, they didn't eat with tax collectors and sinners, they had good religious habits, good religious practices, then they would be clean before God. That would be their purity before a holy God. And then Jesus, long comes offensive, intolerant Jesus to these Pharisees. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside and dead on the inside, full of uncleanness, is what he says to them. The path of true transformation in the Bible is not outward in. That's not how it works. That's not how it flows. It is inward out. The stain of sin does not require adopting new habits. It requires receiving a new heart, a new nature. So the demand of Psalm 24, that in order to appear before the holy presence of God, you need clean hands and a pure heart, is meant to drive us to despair of self and to come to the Lord in desperation. Like David, our only recourse when we see the stain of sin on our hands is to say, wash me, Lord, and I shall be clean. Create in me a clean heart, Lord, and I shall be pure. Yet even in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, a beacon of hope for this issue is lit in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. Have you seen the Lord of the Rings movies? But it's a one scene where they're trying to light these beacons to let the other people know that, hey, we need your army to come. And the, the fire lights and there's this beacon of hope. That's what the prophets were like in the Old Testament. They're kind of downers a little bit, but they, they had these gospel promises that they lit to show that Christ is coming. A way forward is going to come. Because what happens over time in, in the progress of redemptive history is the ceremonial starts to fade and the reality starts to increase. So as the ceremony fades, you start to see the reality being pointed to and then coming in Christ. So here's what Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26 says. And think of this in light of the basin for washing that they saw over and over again. This is the Lord. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What he demands of us, he promises to provide for us. He who says, be clean, promises that he will cleanse us. And this is made abundantly clear through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the basin for washing ultimately points us to Christ who alone can take away our uncleanness and make us permanently, irreversibly clean. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he, 
and he alone can wash us white as snow. So in the Old Testament, a priest comes in contact with anything related to death, disease, discharge, defect, disallowed foods, any of that, what happens to them? They would have contracted uncleanness. Uncleanness was highly contagious. There was nothing you could do. No, no rubber gloves, no nothing. You became unclean. But when Christ comes, everything is reversed. Everything changes. So the man with leprosy comes to Jesus. He says, could you heal me? Jesus reaches out and touches that leper, the untouchable. And what happens? Uncleanness is not transferred to Jesus. Cleanness is transferred to the leper. He's made whole. He's restored. When Jesus visits Peter's mother-in-law, she is sick. She's deathly ill, a disease that would have made a priest unclean. He reaches out and touches her. And what happens? She is made well. He lifts her up. He restores her. And then when a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for decades reaches out and just touches the hem of Jesus' garment, it is not Jesus who becomes unclean, but her who becomes clean. With Christ, it is cleanness that is highly contagious. Every miracle that Jesus performs by reaching out and touching the person was someone who would have been considered untouchable by a priest and unpresentable in the temple. And yet the moment Jesus touches them, they're made clean, And some of them, for the first time, could have walked into the temple, could have participated in the ceremony of that system for the first time. So Jesus is the one who has potent purity. The priests of the Old Testament had a very uh, changeable purity, a a very fragile purity. But Jesus has this radiating, potent purity that comes upon everyone who he touches. And Think of the washing of the, uh, the basin for washing in Jesus Christ. Think of that scene on the eve of his crucifixion in John 13. Jesus wraps his servant's towel around his waist. He grabs a basin for water, fills it with water, and he sits down and he begins washing the disciples' feet. He's doing the very act that a priest would have had to do with that basin for washing, washing their feet. And in that moment, it was as if the disciples were witnessing the basin for washing taking flesh and dwelling among them, making them clean. And Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't get anything before the resurrection. So he says to Jesus, you should not be doing this. You shouldn't be washing my feet. This is a servant's shop. My feet are dirty. They're disgusting. And Jesus replies to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Meaning, if you do not wash Peter, you will die. If you do not wash, just like the priest in the Old Testament, you will die. Apart from Christ, there is no way to remove the stain of sin. But in him, we are made permanently and irreversibly clean. The blood on our hands requires the blood of Christ to wash it away fully and completely. The stain of unrighteousness that you have requires the perfect, spotless garments of salvation that have been sewn together by Christ's own purity and righteousness and placed upon us. So Christ declares over all those who trust in him, that they know that despite their best efforts, they cannot clean themselves. He says, in me, you are clean. You are clean permanently, irreversibly, unalterably. You have been washed and sanctified and justified in Christ. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he he alone washes it white as snow. Now, how should we respond to this? What does it look like now? As those who have been made clean, how do we live in fellowship with Christ? Well, our response to this is to continually wash ourselves in the water of God's word 
even as we know that we have been definitively washed by Christ. So in the scriptures, there's discussion of a definitive, once-for-all, unrepeatable washing, but also a continual, ongoing renewal that happens in light of that. So the best illustration I can think of is when my children were born, uh, and especially my first one, I, I wasn't expecting this, but when they come out, they're very... They're disgusting. They're, they're ugly. There's just no way. There's no way to say it. No, nothing prepares you. Sorry, future parents. They're very. They're covered in blood, and and the nurse takes them, and and they first ask you, "Would you like to hold them?" And you're like, "Well, let's wait a little bit, maybe." And but then they wash them, and they put these clean clothes on them, and they come to you, and they're and just they smell better, and they look, and you hold them. And it's like, this is your child brought to the arms of the Father, clean, made new, renewed. And yet, you wouldn't stop bathing them after that point. You know, I tried with my wife to say, you know, they don't need a shower tonight. But you continually bathe them. They're, they're still in your family. They've been brought to the Father. They, they have your name. And yet, because of the different defilements that come, they get dirty, they play in the mud, they pick their nose, things like that. You, you continually wash them. That's a picture of the Christian life. You have been made pure by grace. Therefore, continually pursue purity in gratitude. It's not if I pursue purity, if I externally make myself clean, maybe God will see me as pure. That's not the logic of the gospel. No, God first gives us a new nature. He gives us a new status, a new record, perfect righteousness. And out of that freedom and fullness, out of that being clean, we pursue a new manner of life that is worthy of the gospel, that glorifies God. And in this new manner of life, we pursue purity in practice, even as we already have it in status. And so what is the continual cleansing agent that God has given us for this renewing that we should continue to pursue? It's the word of God. Psalm 119.9 and 11 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what protects our purity in practice moving forward? It's hiding God's word in our heart to sharpen our conscience, to know right from wrong, to shape our wisdom so we know wisdom from foolishness. And then John 17, 17 says, so Jesus praying, he says, sanctify them in truth, purify them in truth. Your word is truth. So what protects the, the purity of our intellectual integrity, the purity of truth? It's knowing the truths, the realities of God's word to protect us from the lies of the world, the deception of the evil one, and then most importantly, the word of God continually, repeatedly reminds us of the gospel, the word of Christ over and over. We need to be reminded of this word every single day because every single day we fall short, we wander, we stray, we feel condemned, we feel unclean again. And we need to be reminded that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray.